Welcome back to another Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. My name is Creek, and I'm with my meek and modest host, um, <laughs> Mario Sikora and Maria Jose Munita. And today we have a wonderful friend of mine on today. His name is Jason Adam Miller. Jason, why do you insist on using your middle name? Uh, because there's a lot of Jason Millers out there, including um, in publishing, there's a sorcerer who sells books on sorcery under the name Jason Miller. There's a rabbi. There's a disgraced MMA fighter <laughs> who keeps showing up in headlines doing disgraceful things. And so I would take advantage of the chance to differentiate myself a bit. <laughs> yes. One of Trump's communication advisors yeah. is Jason Miller also. So that, yeah, thank you. I, how you I, feel I, there. Yeah. yeah. The list is so long. <laughs> I even forgot about him, but that's actually the one that causes me the most problems. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. So yeah, Jason and I have been friends for a really long time, so going on like eight years, something like that. And I've really appreciated his, not only his humor, his wit, his appreciation for the finer things of life and just beauty and intentionality, but also his intellectual honesty and rigor at how he approaches his own life as well as his work, which is a pastor. And we've been doing a series on spirituality, as many of you know. And the reason that we're having people on to talk about it instead of us just talking about it is because we're not pastors, you know? Jason, can you kind of fill us in a little bit on uh, what, you're, what you've been up to in the past few years? Yeah, uh, so I am a lead pastor of a, a faith community called South Bend City Church. Uh, we formed as a community in 2016, 2017. There's a long backstory to that, but we call ourselves things like a community for believers and doubters and everybody who's a bit of both. We're, I mean, we're a Jesus community, we're a Christian community, but we have a view of that that I think um, holds a lot of space for people coming from a lot of different places and um, places of conviction and a lack of clarity. We call ourselves liturgically promiscuous because we really want to avail ourselves of a really wide array of ways of being together and, and ways of practicing and reflecting and, and worshiping. We're an inclusive community, uh, which is really important for us that um, people at South and City Church can belong all the way up into leadership and, and marriage, uh, regardless of their uh, sexuality or gender identity. We're right in the heart of South Bend, and that matters. South Bend is a beautiful and complex city, as any community is, and we're right in the heart of it, and we take very seriously a call to uh, love our city well. So, uh, Jason, as you were talking about your community, uh, it reminded me a little bit of Jesus uh, and, <laughs> you know, kind of what he talked about, uh, which, I, you know, is not the reaction I always have when I hear about, uh, you know, a lot of church communities these days. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, th I mean, that's yeah, hopefully any person in my role would take that as a compliment. <laughs> um, I grew up in traditions that basically discounted the Gospels as not having a lot of practical information. And, um, <laughs> and then uh -huh. later in life, I had to start asking some real hard questions about that. And mm -hmm. so we certainly get more wrong than we get right, but we are interested in taking the same kinds of risks that we saw him taking and to see what happens, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I particularly like the... Uh, uh, the openness that you talked about and the acceptance, uh, because this is one of my big frustrations with what I see in many faith traditions is, um, you know, an emphasis on exclusion rather than embracing. And, uh, so I, uh, I'm, I'm, 
I'm happy to hear when people talk about traditions like this. So thank you. Yeah, I think um, I had to, I had to decide for myself a long time ago. I'm either a do I have access to the information that I need to be a a good gatekeep? Like, do I know enough to be a gatekeeper? And the answer is no. I just don't. I don't know enough about God. I don't know enough about other people to presume that I could, in any kind of appropriate way, be a gatekeeper on a community or on people's experience of God. I just had to kind of resign myself from that stance. So Jason, we, we are in fact an Enneagram podcast. Some may doubt that at times, but for you, what, what has been your experience with the Enneagram, both personally and professionally? So I'm, I feel I'm, I'm a sophomore. I'm like a wise fool, meaning I think I know a little more about it than people who don't know about it, but I'm not an expert. My first encounter with it was, I think about 12 years ago, I had a lot of friends uh, in some other church worlds who were pretty familiar with it. And um, they were big evangelists for it. I know when I first was kind of helped to discover my type, it was really, really, really transformative for me. Um, even just, and so I think it kind of pretty immediately uh, became compelling for me. And then I seem to be endlessly surrounded by friends who are giving their lives and passions to the Enneagram, some of whom are doing so with deep credibility and training, like Creek and my friends over at Fathoms. Others, not so much. Uh, but it certainly comes up a lot in our church as well. Yeah, so I think why I first took to it is it it seemed to be a really powerful tool for self-awareness in my line of work as we try to help people grow, grow in love. Self-awareness is really important. And so I think any tool that helps people grow in self-awareness is a powerful one. And then I, I come from an evangelical background and world, and a lot of our church people come from evangelical spaces. And I know that Growing up, we heard we heard so much about our inner life, about how important it was to know your inner life, about the importance of growing and healing, and and but we were given so few tools to fulfill that mandate. So we were given a hunger to you know know ourselves and to grow, but I don't know that we were given very many great tools. And so the Enneagram, I think, for many of us, has come along and as a a real um, answer to that question. That being said, uh, I certainly have seen and felt how something that started um, as a tool of real wisdom, like as it grains popularity, it also turns into a caricature of itself sometimes. And so um, yeah, I certainly see a lot of that, whether it's just the ways that members of my community are using it or the way it's getting played out at the world at large. So I'm a fan of it when it's really well used by wise practitioners and I'm really concerned about it when it becomes just another way to um, reduce people. Yeah, I think that's, maybe that's the tip of the spear of my concern is that when it becomes um, a, re a way of reducing people rather than honoring the depth of people, there's kind of a fork in the road for me there. What What's maybe been, that's maybe one frustration. Um, do you have like maybe do you, any sort of like personal frustration with the Enneagram? <laughs> do I? Um, yeah, I think in addition to, so, I mean, let's like on a couple of layers, you know, you're at a, you're in a team meeting or you're at a dinner party and somebody throws your type at you as a way of dismissing you. Uh, they, they throw your type at you as a way of discounting your contribution. Oh, you're just saying that because you're a five. I think like it's just kind of a day-to-day -day level. I'm like, don't use it for that. It just feels very, um, uh, like you're really missing the point. At a larger level, another thing I've just been observing, the world I came from, we really craved a sort of explanatory system for everything. 
And the, the shape that that took in the world I came from was the, the Bible explains everything. The Bible has all we need for everything. You got a mental health problem, you don't need good therapy, you need the Bible. You got a dietary problem, you don't need modern nutrition, you need the Bible. Um, you have an ethical question, you don't need any other considerations than the Bible. And I, the Bible to me is just clearly not that kind of book. So, but I'm kind of allergic to that effort to make any one thing a sort of totalitizing explanation of reality in all forms. And I've been discovering that I, I think maybe some people, maybe they bring that same stance and they've just migrated it over. And now they want the Enneagram to be this, this one thing that can explain everything. And I'm, I'm wary of, of that approach too. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, right? Uh, you, you know, or at least in other places where, you know, that's kind of one of our pet peeves as well. So, so what's interesting to me is that you're describing both a superficial use of it and then an overuse yes. in a way that that is falsely profound, right? Um, that, oh, the Enneagram explains everything. And there's this awful quote from, I guess it's Uspensky or something, you know, claiming to quote Gurdjieff, saying that, you know, the person who understands the Enneagram can throw away all the books and, you know, blah, 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 and draw an Enneagram in the sand and have all the wisdom of the world, which is just such a load of crap, right? And, um, but there is this need for reifying, almost deifying the Enneagram in a lot of places that's not just disturbing from a cult-like perspective, but just, just stupid too. Right. I mean, it, it's just so intellectually limiting. And, you know, we see this even in people's attempts to apply the Enneagram to pretty much every activity known to man. You know, the Enneagram of paint palettes, the Enneagram of <laughs> haircuts and, you know, and even, you know, applying, the, you know, the Enneagram to business like Maria Jose and I do. Um, the, some of the applications we see are just such a force fit of starting with an idea and then trying to force it onto reality rather than using the idea as a way of better understanding reality and treating it as it is rather than just one more, you know, form of illusion that we create for ourselves. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Does that feel to you like a sort of, that, that feels to me like a religious impulse. I mean, just in the, in the broadest sense that humans are religious by nature, almost that we, we crave, totalitizing systems of explanation for everything. And if we don't have one, we, we grip another. That feels religious to me. And I, I don't actually, don't, I don't think religion is a bad word, but I mean, kind of in the negative yeah. sense here. Sure. For, for me, it's, 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 it's a hunger for certainty mm -hmm. and, and a tendency of the human brain to attribute agency to things, right? So we we want an explanation for something that makes us feel certain so we don't have to think about it anymore. So we don't have to, you know, expend more thought, more reflection than necessary. And so I can feel certain. I read a great quote today. Certainty feels the same whether you're right or wrong. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah, Ooh. isn't that something? And wow. um, I, I'm going to say I made that up. Yeah, but I okay. did, uh, you know, <laughs> so... Uh, so and and that's what we crave, and so we'd rather be certain and wrong than uncertain and right in in certain ways. So, and and I don't just attribute this to religion. I you know I mean there are a lot of people who are not you know religious people who see religion as a, a bad thing or a negative thing, and I don't. It's that quest for certainty 
and that hunger to hold on to certainty to the point where it starts limiting our view of the world and starts and we start having to rationalize that feeling of certainty and through some very negative ways, right? Through this, some of this exclusion that we were talking about earlier, right? Or, um, or, you know, that can even lead to hatred of the other in some way that becomes justified through a religious perspective. Creek and I were talking earlier, uh, like last night even, about the cycle of naming and unnaming and naming and unnaming. And I think like we have an experience and we don't have language for it. Then we begin to name the experience. We, tend, we create like a taxonomy of experience or a taxonomy of reality based on experience. And I think that's very human and really beautiful. And when we name our experience, we can share our experience. But at, at some point, you got to be vigilant that the naming be, is always provisional, right? So once the naming becomes too concrete, it's time to go to some unnaming, you know, which in like in scripture, this is basically the experience of like idol breaking, right? Like we, we start to build an idol out of the thing. And then we need to, then we need to like shatter the idols and come back to the unnaming. And I can see uh, the Enneagram, maybe in its kind of cultural expression, has moved into too much naming. And now it's time for some unnaming to kind of correct that impulse and get back to remembering what it can do and what it can't do. And religion needs to always subject itself to that same cycle, I think. In the Zen tradition, there's um, uh, there's what's called uh, shikantaza, which is a it's, it means just sitting, right? And, uh, and it's actually the most advanced form of meditation because you go through all the rituals and you go through all the practices and you go through all the discipline building to get to that point of freedom where now I'm just sitting again and I'm just breathing. And, and I think the same does hold with the Enneagram. You know, Maria Jose and I always talk about um, how we just, we really don't talk about the Enneagram much, right? I mean, even though it's what we do for a living and we don't, we don't talk about our types, you know, we talk all the time, but we don't talk about, you know, her oneness or my eightness or anything unless we have to. Unless we need to explain something, yeah. right. which is like like a shortcut to explaining it, but otherwise it's just not needed. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I did a talk the other night for uh, an Enneagram group. <laughs> it was called uh, how, to, how to Cultivate a Lifetime Enneagram Practice or something like that, you know, and uh, uh, which really, really made me feel old. But uh, and it turned out that the host was, uh, I think, uh, one year younger than the amount of time I've been working with the Enneagram. So it was his lifetime, I guess. But um, <laughs> but, um, you know, one of the point I was making is that if if you want this to be a model that you use over a lifetime, you go through this process of building up and then chipping away. Right. So when it comes to the Enneagram, you can come up with all these different ideas and most of them are crap anyway. But, you know, it's this, you know, oh, there's all these different dimensions and all these triads and all these wings and all this sort of stuff. And then you get to a point where it's like, nah, man, you know, just just um, how am I getting into striving to feel powerful again? Right. How is that trapping me? Just keep going back to that one thing over and over again. And that's where the real work starts when we've simplified it and done away with all that other stuff, I think. So I want to know something about Jason, because I know all you have to say, Mario. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> most of it, really. I didn't have a few examples that you've shared today that you just listened to. But <laughs> oh, <man>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Jason, why did you decide to become a pastor? Oh, that's a great question. Well, let me tell you. 
<laughs> Shut up. Oh man. Um, it be, it, that story began with um, an experience when I was 16 where the way I would have described it, I would still describe it as I felt called in a moment in time, 16 years old uh, in a religious space, felt that the thing that kind of rose up inside me was a feeling of calling. Uh, but I immediately kind of shelved it because church seemed uninteresting to me. Uh, music was my real passion. Uh, it's still something I love, but I thought my future would be in music. So I kind of spent the next few years kind of lost vocationally going into college. I had a bunch of different majors, but it was the religious community around me that kind of kept calling me back to that. Say, hey, would you try leading this? Would you try? We, we think you should do this. And at first it was kind of begrudgingly and it slowly became something I really loved. And I somewhere along the way, I think just it settled into my bones that like, I think this is what I am. I don't mean at the same level of identity as like deepest identity, but in terms of vocation, I think, I don't know if I'll work at a church my entire life, but I think I'll spend my life um, wanting to walk with people in what I would call like their spiritual journey. And I, I love that work and it feels more meaningful than any other work that I've done. How would you describe this spiritual journey? That's a big question. Uh, for, from where I sit um, in my own experience and tradition, the word spirit's really important. So let me use a metaphor. You can tell me if this helps or not. Um, there's one brand of piano in the world called Busendorfer, and they make pianos that make Steinways look cheap. Uh, they're some of the most <laughs> renowned concert halls in the world have a Busendorfer concert grand piano in them. And the innovation of Busendorfer, I think like 100 years ago or something, maybe longer, was instead of an 88-key piano, they make a 96-key piano. And they're not interested in you playing the keys outside the 88 keys, but they know that, you know, like on a piano, when you hit a middle C, the ear doesn't just hear the C, it hears the G above it and the C above that. And there's all these kind of stacked resonant frequencies on top of that one note that sounds. Their insight was just the, the, the sound is more beautiful when there are more resonant frequencies beyond the 88 for that note to sound out on. And I think um, that's the best metaphor I have for like, spirit in our like what, what are we saying when we say we are spiritual or we have a spiritual life it's that which we're, we're trying to grapple with the idea that maybe there's you, you are you are perhaps more than just the sum of these sort of material parts of yourself that there's something about a you that resounds beyond that and that we want to learn how to like take that seriously and honor that and interact with that and then my conviction is that that's going to take you because of my beliefs and convictions about God, for example, I think um, that's going to take you in the direction of love. I think it's going to take you in the direction of wholeness and integration when you do that work well. Uh, because I think that that's the, sort of the direction God's always sort of moving in. And if you can kind of open yourself to that, you're going to discover that you're you're kind of on that journey. How would you describe doing good spiritual work? What does it mean mm -hmm. to be seriously spiritual? I'll go back to self-awareness. I think I want to start there. Uh, I think a lot of bad spiritual work comes from a lack of self-awareness or leads people further into delusion. And good spiritual work leads them into reality. I think good spiritual work has to always keep love in front of it as its highest end. But by love, I mean the thing that I think de defines God. And so I don't think you have to believe in God to be on a spiritual journey. I don't think you have to be believe in God to grow in love. But my understanding of where that all comes from means that you're going to be interacting with that other, all the words fall down, right? God's not a thing. God's not a being, but 
whatever we mean by that word that points to the mystery of love beyond us that's also in us that sustains everything. Um, good spiritual work is going to is going to expose you to more of that flow, and it's going to help you dismantle some of the resistance that you have to it. Uh, that's sort of keeping you from being a part of that flow. When I listen to you, now I understand why the two of you are friends. Yeah. <laughs> all these metaphors, the music, and all these conversations, I can totally see the two of you spending yeah. hours yeah. talking about these things. Yeah. I think other people would just be so annoyed if they have to just sit and listen to me and Creek have a conversation for a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're having a good time. I'm just not sure anybody yeah, else yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Yeah. There's been a couple of yeah. situations where... All of a sudden, I snap back to reality and I realize there's five other people in the circle listening <laughs> to Jason and I talk about something. Uh, uh, your, wasn't quite a definition, but your description of God mm. caught my attention. Uh, say more about that. Again, this is where language starts to break down, I think. But um, I want to be careful not to cast God in the same categories that we use for everything else, which I think is one, one of the ways we go wrong. I have my own little definition that works for me, which is God is the loving mystery at the center of reality. I'm not trying to say so mysterious that we can't name it, but back to the naming and unnaming. I just want to be really careful about how concrete I get in my naming. It, well, I mean, it's the dilemma, right? So, and it, it gets, it gets back to this idea of uh, comfort with certainty because most people you ask that question of, and they have a very defined answer, you know, and it can, you know, there's all sorts of answers to that question, but there's usually a rigidity to them and that rigidity to it causes us not to have to think about it anymore. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And when I hear your answer, it's one that is, um, it it leads to exploration rather than closure, I guess, right? Of something to keep thinking about because, you know, once we think we've defined something, we can forget about it. That's right. Almost, right? And, um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm far more interested in that sort of interpretation of something than I am, you know, oh, it's this, you know, guy with the white beard on the, you know, ceiling of the chapel sort of thing. You know, it's just it's just not an interesting answer to me because it it shuts off conversation and exploration. So I, I, I like what you have to say there. Jason, you and I have talked about this a lot of this weird dance that must be danced between intellectual honesty, critical thinking and subjective experience of, of faith, of mystery, of that sort of thing. Um, maybe what's, what's been your personal journey, um, in, in finding how to do those steps in that dance? Yeah. I, yeah, we talk about this a lot. I think about it a lot. One framework that helps me is kind of pre-critical, critical, post-critical. Post um, I grew up in what I would call a very pre-critical environment, meaning we, we didn't really ask hard questions about why do we think we know that? Or, you know, what is the Bible? Um, there's very much kind of a, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But even that's like, but did God say it? And what part of the Bible are you looking at? And all these things, right? I think one of the good things about my tradition in, in Christian faith is the Bible itself, I think, sort of, it's a terrible book for a pre-critical stance because it, it just read the thing once cover to cover and it's not going to let you stay in a pre-critical stance toward its own text because it doesn't, it just doesn't work that way, you know? And that was one of my big adolescent like as a teenager growing up in church, I loved church growing up. I loved, it was a place where I felt very safe and um, very invigorated, but I'm kind of a bookish 
person. So like when they said we read the Bible, it's like, I'll read the Bible. And then you read it and you're like, um, it, it pretty much like forces you into a, a critical stance, I think, unless you resist it, you know. I went on the journey that a lot of my peers have gone through with like grad school and studying theology in a more diverse environment that didn't have those pre-critical commitments of like evangelical spaces. It was a, a, a place where people were not only comfortable with, but really required you to do critical work on faith and scripture. And I'm really thankful for that. But I think I did come to believe that a purely critical stance ends up being so reductive and it's not, it doesn't feel very generative to me ultimately. And I'm interested in um, something generative. And that's where I think coming back to something personal subjective is pretty important for me. But it's one that's been informed by that critical encounter that I, and to me, it's back to naming and naming. It's kind of cyclical. I, I, I find that the movement in my life is mostly kind of swinging back and forth between the critical and the post-critical. Critical meaning like, I don't know, um, maybe in a, in a time of spiritual practice or prayer, I gained a sense of something. I felt something, felt led in a certain direction. And then you take a step back from it and evaluate it. And you say, you know, put on your critical lens. But I think, um, I don't want to stay there. I want to come back to a sort of post-critical uh, stance, which from the outside looking in can look a lot like pre-critical, which is confusing to people. But I actually think that the, the magic, I think, is in kind of swimming back and forth between critical and post-critical. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure I understand post-critical. Here. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a real practical example. Our church is involved in a building project right now. So we're having to raise money and you know, take risk and do very practical things in the world. And, you know, we discerned that to together as a community and you know, there's a kind of traditional element of faith involved there. Um, we're going to sign a mortgage and it's millions of dollars and we're going to do this thing. And I find, I'm kind of of two minds about this kind of a project. On the one hand, I can explain, I think, everything in a kind of purely material and psychological lens. Like, you know, are we going to have the money? Well, we have this much data. We have giving trends. We have spreadsheets. We know that on a typical capital campaign, 80% of the commits will come through. It'll be a 20% attrition rate. To me, that's kind of the critical stance, right? We just use the analysis and information that we have and we're looking at the data. But but I'm also alongside that. I'm open to and actually kind of want to also stand in a sense of like, I think the language I would use is I think we felt called to this. We are are kind of betting that something beyond all those things is at work in all of this. And I want to live there too, where sometimes when I'm a little restless at night and I am having a hard time sleeping, I, I'm reaching for and coming back to sense of like, I think this is in God's hands. And um, that to me is, is, a, is a sort of felt experience of moving in back into that post-critical where I can look at it from purely material and analytical analysis. And I think that's really important because it tempers my faith, right? It tempers my certainty. It reminds me that I don't know what I don't know. But I also, I, I think to walk in the version of faith that I believe in today is to come back to saying, I think God called us to this. And I think God will provide this uh, through these people. And I think when we get into that building, we'll find out why we felt so called to be there. Uh, does that help at all? It does. It does. Yeah. Um, yeah so it's interesting to me, you, you know, we, uh, a big part of the work that we do is around um, clear thinking skills, right? And so we, you, you know, we're always, I fall into referring to it as critical thinking, uh, at times, and Maria Jose is always good to correct me and say, no, we're talking about clear thinking because there's a difference there. 
um, you know, critical thinking is what's the flaw in this and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, clear thinking is how do I see this more clearly and more accurately? So th these, you know, this whole idea of epistemology and how we know what we know is, you know, if you listen to the podcast at this point, you've heard that term a few times. And <laughs> so, um, you know, ad nauseum, you know, so it's always interesting to me because for me, it always comes down to what kind of question am I asking? Is it a question rooted in objectivity or subjectivity? Okay. And there are different tools for addressing those things. But there's also an element of, you know, nothing being purely objective or subjective, right? There's always a piece of both of them. There's a guy, um, he's a financial guy who writes about decision-making named Michael Maubison. And he had a quote one time that I really liked. He said, you know, when making decisions, you first have to figure out if it's a linear problem or a nonlinear problem, right? And if it's a linear problem, then you just do the math and you make the decision based on, you know, what the facts are. And if it's a nonlinear decision, like, do I start this church or do I marry this woman or should I have another child? You do your homework and then you trust your gut, right? So, you know, it sounds to me that you're kind of doing a version of that, right? Of, you know, uh, trusting something inside of you that can't be measured, that doesn't have metrics and so forth. Is that fair? Is that analogous? Yeah, that really stacks alongside that, I think. Uh, one other framework that's been helpful to me is, again, maybe the same thing, just different, different languages, a finite game versus yeah. an infinite game. Uh, which mm -hmm. I forget who came up with that, but the book's interesting. If, yeah. You know these terms? Um, yeah, I, I do. I'm trying to remember, too. I, it wasn't Simon Sinek, was it? I, I can't remember. I think he might invoke anyway, it, I, but yeah. Um, okay. But sorry, yeah. I think we're, we're kind of speaking around some of the same experiences with a little bit of different language, but yeah. yeah. I, part of that, I'll just say, too, is I think back to the point of knowledge and epistemology, I think there are certain uh, fields of knowledge that lend themselves to discrete discrete or objective or empirical knowledge. And then my understanding or conviction about reality is that there are other parts of reality that don't lend themselves to the certain, the same modes of knowledge. And one of the, like the problems like science and faith, one of the problems is I think sometimes at its, at its best science restricts its field of inquiry to the kinds of things that the tools that science has are good at knowing. And at our best um, spirituality, religion, faith traditions, they should also constrict their claims of knowledge to the kinds of things that they're good at knowing, but it's a different, but it's a different modality of knowledge, right? So like empirical knowledge is different than other kinds. And so to, you know, to, to create a myth, a story that conveys ultimate meaning is I think a transmission of knowledge, but it's a very different kind of knowledge that you should hold differently and use differently than the kind of knowledge that you gain about say the coefficient of friction on my floor and what that means for the kind of shoes I should wear if I don't want to slip. But I want both. I, I think I, I want to try to hold both. I just want to be, try to remain clear on what terrain am I on and then what's the appropriate modality of knowledge. And then you can hold empirical knowledge differently than this other kind of knowledge. And I think it's one of the ways that we all kind of miss each other. And I, I don't know how y'all think about the Enneagram on that front, but to me, the Enneagram feels a little more like that latter kind of knowledge. I don't, I don't know enough about like... Can we get our hands on whether somebody is an Enneagram 8 in the same way that we can get our hands on their blood type? I, I don't know if that's the case, right? Sorry, that's just me riffing on. Epistemology is really important. Yeah. I've been wrestling with it a lot lately. Yeah. You know, the whole science versus faith thing 
is just the wrong question, right? I mean, it's just the wrong conversation to be having. It's baseball versus football, music versus carpentry, right? I mean, it's, you know, why why are we even asking that question? And I think you're on to something and that the reason we end up asking that question is because people take one of them and misuse it and use it for something it's not, you know, meant for, right? It's, you know, taking a football and hitting it with a baseball bat or something. It's just, well, no, that's not you know what it is. Um, and you're, you're absolutely right that there are, or let me put it this way. I agree with you that, you know, there are these, <laughs> which is the same thing. Just so you know, Jason. <laughs> just pretending. <laughs> just pretending. And me being right. Me, yeah. Me, yeah. Yeah. If I agree with you, then you're right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. You're pretending to be humble here, but yeah. don't waste your time. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I would no more use faith to determine, you know, what's at the heart of a, an atom than I would try to use science to define what's at the heart of a human, you know? Yeah. I mean, it just, you know, I mean, why, why, you know, why do that? You use other things, you know? Um, something I, I've referred to in the past on the podcast is the argument between Anselm and Occam, right? And Anselm, you know, the ontological argument, here's the proof of God, right? You know, it's it's a fact because I can prove it. And Occam comes along and says, no, first of all, there are flaws in your argument and you're going about it the wrong way anyway because faith is a gift and you either believe or you don't. And if you don't then no amount of logic, science, or argumentation is going to get you there. Um, so, yeah, so again, I, I think that we get trapped in the wrong argument. And I see, we see it all the time in the Enneagram world, right? So, you know, to get to your point uh, or your question, um, one of the tricky things about the Enneagram is that we often don't define the claim that we're making. This was one of my big frustrations when I first started working with the Enneagram was that there was no definition of what it meant to be a five. Mm. Okay, A five was this or that or, you know, it had these characteristics or those characteristics. And it troubled me because, you know, teaching in organizations in particular, but also just being the way I am, um, you know, I, I, I need I need clarity. I need a definition here. You know, so we came up with this idea of strategies and the idea, the reason we call somebody a five is because they overuse, you know, they use more the strategy of uh, striving to feel detached than they do the other eight strategies. Okay. But even that's relatively subjective, right? Because are we talking about how they are now or how they've been over the course of their life and how does that look, you know, in various ways and various people? So we have to hold it lightly. And you're right. It's not like a blood test where we have, okay, here's what the definition is. As with many things having to do with human nature, we're talking around them. Yes. And trying to get a perspective on them by talking around them to some extent. But you have to define your terms, really, in order to have that conversation. So we're talking about the Enneagram, but we're talking about critical thinking as well, or clear thinking uh, and spirituality. When you are intellectually curious and honest and value these things, you tend to change your mind along the way. And when you're teaching, changing your mind might be tricky. So 
Would you share some things that you have changed your mind about along the way? Yeah, sure. I mean, the most explicit one is going to be around sexuality and gender identity. I don't know that I had a fixed commitment to a traditional view of those things, but I certainly didn't have a commitment to real inclusion for those people. But the journey that brought me there included experience with some loved ones and the stories of other people who have just shared what it's like to be a, say, a gay person or a transgender person, combined with kind of going back to my own faith tradition and reevaluating it and wondering, did I, what, what did I think that I saw there and did I see it correctly? And also considering the possibility that maybe, maybe I did see my tradition correctly, but maybe this tradition needs updated. Maybe it's just time to revise it in light of what we've learned about people's suffering. And that means taking a community with me because when South and City Church started, we didn't have an explicit commitment to that inclusion. It was a sort of a, an elephant in the room question for us. And so in 2018, we clarified that, but that meant, you know, having to stand up and explain that and to take whatever heat would come from that. And, you know, for some people, I think they felt that I had betrayed them when I made that turn. And for others, you know, they're obviously really excited about it, but that's probably the most dramatic one that comes to mind. Can you say more about the pushback you got? I mean, I'm curious as you open up in this way, um, those people who did feel burdened, but even the broader Christian community in general, what was the reaction? Yeah. You know, I didn't take a ton of heat. Like nobody came at me me in a really harsh way. I think I had it better than many pastors who have made that move. I don't know why entirely. I did lose all of my speaking gigs, like all of them outside of South Pacific Church. Yeah. There were a number of faith communities where I would um, regularly uh, preach outside of our church. And yeah, they, you know, they dried up overnight and they've not really come back and, I mean, I'm, I'm fine, right? I'll be okay. But um, but yeah, there was a real kind of, I mean, I even got a, a letter from my undergraduate alma mater, not a letter, an email, uh, where I was scheduled to speak later. I was like, I was the young alumni of the year at my college. They had my picture hanging in the administration hall. It's not hanging there anymore. <laughs> and I was, I was told that that institution would like to um, operate at a space of charitable distance from me. Uh, going forward is the first wow, they used. Really? So, yeah. <laughs> wow. And to be clear, uh, um, I think they love me, and I I don't feel that I was done some great wrong. I'm more concerned about the LGBTQ people who are there who more directly face the consequences of that stance. But I, you know what I mean? Like I I, I want to be careful here. I'm like I'm just I'm not a martyr. You know, these are s- small little inconveniences compared to what um, LGBTQ people face every day. So, but that that's that's kind of how it went down for me. So, so that's interesting. So, uh, you know, as you talk about this, so I live in Philadelphia and um, in Philadelphia, there's an area that's now openly referred to as the gayborhood. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, you know, it was always known as the place where gay people congregated, but it was in secret. And it was, um, you know, there was a bookstore there, Giovanni's reading room, still there, I think, um, that would regularly be vandalized. Okay. And now, you know, the street signs have pride flags on them. And, you know, and so society is changing in general. There is some resistance to it, particularly in a lot of faith communities. I'm curious if you see a, and, and I attribute that to sort of a generational liberalism that happens, right? Liberalization, perhaps. Do you see the possibility of the same? for the church in general? 
I think my theory is um, that a, a growing number of faith communities will make this turn in the next years and decades. And I imagine that, I don't imagine a future where there aren't still a significant number of faith communities, you know, even years and years and years and years from now. Uh, I, I imagine that there's still a lot of spaces that hold to a, a non-affirming view. I even think part of what's happening right now is there's actually an intensifying antagonism, you know, that that these quote-unquote progressive forces are sort of contributing to the radicalization of quote-unquote conservative forces and like vice versa, you kind of feel them energizing each other negatively. So I don't know what, what that looks like in the next 10, 15, 20 years. And even in our politics in America, that it's, I sense that, and I think the church is mirroring that very dramatic. Churches that were less explicitly conservative 10 years ago are more, I, I've seen a lot of churches move more politically and theologically conservative. Churches that allowed women to preach 10 years ago don't allow women to preach today. Like, I'm, I'm watching, really? yeah, I'm watching these movements. And again, I think that I, that sort of demonstrates the antagonism between these two directions as they kind of push and pull each other. So as we're, as we were talking about like the two different types of knowledge, one based in data and so as, as much objectivity as we can muster, and this other one, this form of knowledge, whether it's experiential or gut or, or some sort of premonition of sorts, when it comes to whether it's the affirming or not, or, or other things where those things seem to be in conflict, what, what's, the, what's the process for you? to weigh of non-definable knowledge? Maybe just to keep it, you know, concrete for me, I'll kind of speak specifically about that process. And, you know, I'm a Christian pastor in a Christian church. You know, I think we kind of start with like our best understanding of what the New Testament is calling us to or pointing toward, but with an awareness that like, there's a bunch of things that churches believe that aren't affirmed by the New Testament. And, but it's a starting point, right? We, We kind of ask ourselves, what do we see there? Do we, and then, and then we look at the world around us and we ask if there's compelling evidence to update that model based on what we see around us. I think, um, but, but even in the New Testament, there is not just positions, but trajectories. And so I want to I follow trajectories. So the trajectories I see in the New Testament are um, love for all people and a, special, and a special concern for marginalized people and the harm caused to them by systems of power and religious structures I see in the New Testament a movement toward that, that God is always like transgressing the group boundaries that we create. And that if you want to follow God, you're going to have to follow God across those boundaries, which is like the entire New Testament could be read through the lens of group boundaries and the, the breaking of those group boundaries between Jew and Gentile. So with a question like this, I'm, on the one hand, I have this tradition I've inherited, and there's really, really robust theological arguments about why marriage is between a man and a woman. And those arguments are because the Bible says so, or because look at the anatomy and, you know, the natural order of things. And, you know, we, we could, I mean, I probably got 20 books on my shelf that make those arguments and you read them on their own and they might be pretty compelling. But I think um, then I look at the world around me and I see the harm caused to people as an implication of those arguments. Uh, I heard somebody say a terrorist is somebody who values ideas more than people. And I think Religion gets pretty terrible when it does that. So, again, but, but the thing is, to me, I'm like, my argument is I'm not, like, becoming less Christian by updating my model. I think I'm becoming more Christian because I see that trajectory written in the gospel stories. But this is interpretive, and it's somebody else can read Luke 4, where Jesus says that Gentiles will be healed differently than I read it. I, say, I feel like I might be rambling a little bit here. To help me sharpen this if this is not helpful. No, this, I, I, this is good for, for me. I mean, I... I 
As I hear Jason talking about this tension within Christianity and this uh, reaction against the liberalism or liberalization in some ways and so forth, it actually reminds me of some of what's happening in the Enneagram world. The, the Enneagram, um, you know, much like the Bible, right? You, you look at the writing of the Bible and it took place over time, right? And there are contradictory versions and there, you know, but then at one point, you know, people got together and said, okay, this is going editorial to be the official committee. version, right? Yeah, the, and the, you're right, an editorial committee, right? And so the Enneagram is much the same way, right? So it started kind of in one place, but then another guy comes along and says, yeah, well, that's okay, but here's this, right? So Achazo starts with some ideas, and then Nerano comes along and says, well, I see it this way. And boom. And then he teaches it to some people and they say, OK, yeah, that's good. But I see it this way. Right. And so there's this spread of which I think is how ideas should work. Right. Of I take this and I bring my own something to it and I bring my own perspective to it and so forth. And then it gets to a point where it's so broad and that people start reacting against it. And then there's this push to standardize the Enneagram, which has always been something that's been there, right? Of, no, we need one official Enneagram. And, and then there's this attempt to codify it by making these claims that it's actually some ancient secret tradition that has existed for 30,000 years and so forth, right? So it, it just feels to me that there are a lot of similarities between it and the church that you're describing. I, I am curious, Jason, on how specifically, you know, your understanding of your Enneagram type shapes your personal spirituality and your own work on yourself. It's it's pretty present of mind for me as I think about how and wh where do I need to grow, how do I want to grow. I think a lot of my faith journey has, has been an intellectual journey. Uh, I, I like studying theology. I like getting into the books. And I think I, I certainly, I think I could have become that jerk who like, whose fundamental stance is I know more than you. And that's the ground of my authority as a pastor or, um, cause, cause I, I can hold a lot of knowledge, information in my head. I'm, I'm good at that. I can connect a lot of information and I could see how that could have become the path for me. And a lot of religious leaders follow that path and it's just not good. Um, and I think the Enneagram has been one of the invitations to me that basically says, there are actually other paths forward for you that are more interesting to grow. Another data point on that is just uh, my body, like literally kind of reconnecting with my body. I think I probably would have had some idea that I needed that before I had the language of the Enneagram, but the Enneagram reinforced that clarity that one of my paths is going to be toward like more integration. Um, my brother used to call me a, a, a mouth with legs, like uh, that I would just kind of <laughs> I just lived up here and just have lots of words, you know what I mean? And so um, it's been really healthy for me to... Uh, it, uh, one more note, I'll just say, I, I'm a really big fan of the idea that in spiritual practice, I, I learned this from the Jesuits. I don't, do y'all ever talk about Agera Contra? This just this act against... Uh, act, it's a spiritual formation principle that I think the Jesuits use, that once you kind of land on a sense of type, one of the ways that you're going to cooperate with your own growth and journey is to put yourself in situations that act against your type. Uh, and so for me, like a recent example of that is, so I'm, I'm terrified of being found incompetent. I really prefer to not live in my body, just to live in my head. And also this may not be Enneagram. I'm also like a raging introvert, but one of the, one of the most like meaningful, profound experiences of the last two years of my life has been uh, jujitsu, which just scared the crap out of me. 
when I started going because I'm a total idiot. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a total beginner. It's in my body. I have to submit to another teacher. I don't have any knowledge that makes me impressive in that room. And you can't sit on the sidelines in a jiu-jitsu class. You have to like literally surrender your body to an opponent. I mean, everything about it is terrifying and it's been amazing. And I think if I didn't have my understanding with this Agarikantra idea, I don't know that I ever would have stepped into that. But it's been, a, I might have just spent more time in the library the last two years. And I think I'm better off for the way my understanding of, of that five space has become sort of an arrow pointing toward practice that helps me act against that. However, you did read a few books before you started doing jujitsu. <laughs> I did. You, I did. You definitely did. read all of that before you started. <laughs> I did. I did. I did. I did. I did. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming on and. Uh, r- real quick, you just released a book. Tell us about that and, and where people can find this this book and connect with you. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wrote a book. Um, it's called When the World Breaks. Uh, the subtitle that I wanted was Suffering, Hope, and the Paradoxes that Put Us Back Together. And it's a reading of the Beatitudes um, as paradoxes that invite us into certain stances that are, I think, really important for our world right now that is breaking on a number of levels, whether it's the geopolitical or the personal. And so um, it's kind of me kind of working out my own experience of those strange blessings, but also putting them in conversation with things like conflict, whether it's like the big stuff uh, or, you know, interpersonal conflict and um, looking for some hope and all that. So yeah, it's available wherever books are sold. Uh, it's audio, You can do the audio book or the, the traditional book and they can find out more at jasonadammiller.com. Not not one of the disgraced Jason. You need to buy that buy that uh, that hosting. <laughs> the disgraced Jason Adam Miller. Yeah, not the disgrace. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks everyone for showing up, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast. <laughs>